Well, good morning, and it's great to see you all here, and, and uh, it's great to be able to come around the Word of God. Great to brave the elements too, isn't it? So I'm kind, of de- I'm kind of determined right now that September is here and the spring's got to turn up somewhere, right? So if I make you shiver just by my appearance, I'm sorry, but I'm kind of like I'm living in hope. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, we are going to continue this morning with this series, Under Construction. And for those visiting today, there's a number of people in the room I don't recognize today. Uh, this is based loosely on a list of virtues presented by the Apostle Peter in his second pastoral letter. So Second Peter, if you know your Bible. And um, we're using a working model here behind us to tell the story along the way, hence the word under construction. And uh, over September, we're exploring the second last virtue on that list. And we're going to tie it in with the concept of the roof of this project. And that virtue is brotherly affection. Now, I uh, decided I was going to do something a bit different with our uh, construction because the pitched roof was meaning that I was having some health and safety issues in my own mind. And uh, because as it pitched down, as your children grow up in a playhouse, that could be problematic with our tin roof. So I'm going with a different sort of frame where it is all, and all the water is going to run backwards off of this thing. So if you have it up against somebody's back fence, it's going to run into the neighbor's backyard. Everything's fine. And uh, so, so we've been talking about the roof being brotherly kindness because it covers us from the elements. Yeah, I'm a master tradesman, as you can see. So far, so good with our construction. Kids have been playing all over this thing and it's been standing. And that is always a good thing. That's a little bit better. Now that's got a better concept behind it. I'm clearly too big for a a cubby house. (laughs) Last week, I spoke briefly and broadly about the way this trait of brotherly kindness works in the church. And I used Romans 12 and 1 Thessalonians 4 to present my thoughts in that setting. And among the many broad challenges in my conclusion last week, I asked if we have an outlet that enables us to get real. Because scripture points to this being a natural outcome of brotherly affection. This element of getting real, getting transparent with people. And, and it's an elusive trait in modern discipleship. Uh, we were talking about this at Men's Breakfast even yesterday, that, that, that to get to this place where we can be in transparent community, it's, it's one of the, the pinnacles of, of how we do church and, and this openness that can emerge out of that. It's an awesome, sacred spot, but it is so hard to attain and it's really high maintenance when you get there because of the amount of trust involved. 
But ideally, this sort of regard for each other, this sort of brotherly kindness, is supposed to provide the safest possible environment for a sense of realness to come out in us. And there's been a lot of chatter over the last few weeks in our context over the word real. And um, if you're not aware of this, this came about because our men's ministry was given a bit of a spotlight on ABC Radio a few weeks ago. And uh, the title of our men's ministry is Real Men. The interviewers correctly uh, caught and published the acronym of Real. But there were people, even in the public and even a few in here, that didn't quite connect that. It was a Facebook post after a three-minute phone interview, so I'm not expecting everything to have come out there. But some, particularly in the communities didn't see a ministry with an acronym of real. They got this idea that you're a real man if you go out drinking with your bros. This was not the intention. And as I was pondering that, in the spirit of leading us to a deeper understanding of biblical brotherly affection and what that helps us achieve, I'm going to outline this acronym of real today in a way that the whole congregation can hopefully remember and even implement in their own ways, and there's not a beer in sight. So I'm going to offer an acronym of REAL to us today. And I want to tie it in with brotherly kindness. So here we go. First up, REAL, and hopefully this thing's going to work. Oops, can I have the PowerPoint back up, please? It exited out. REAL is about being... We'll just make note as we go along this. R stands for resourceful. All right, can you just get that second slide up? That's it, thanks, mate. I'll hopefully catch it from there. Being resourceful. Now, this idea for me was actually inspired by a study conducted by the University of Technology in Queensland. I'm actually a facilitator of a program to high school students that resulted out of the study. And the idea in play is that when... Next slide. Uh, uh, This thing's not working. When we're under the pump, no, back one, we can either behave in risky ways or resourceful ways. And I believe Scripture is all over this concept. It recognizes both the risk and the resourcefulness that can play out in various testing settings in our life. We've seen this to some degree in Romans 12 already. When in the context of brotherly affection, Paul echoes Christ by saying, bless those who persecute us. Blessed don't curse. So when we're under the pump, persecution, it's safe to say, is a pressure on our lives. And if we look at the scripture, we we are in the West, don't think of our persecution, um, all that, that tough. Can you just go back one, mate? Thanks. The um, persecution is a, pr- is a pressure. And we can, under that pressure, retaliate. We can turn away from our faith. We can separate from community. We can even sell out our own. 
and in Peter's congregation that he's writing to, who are facing both the front of persecution as well as this front of seduction going on from false teachers, that's kind of what's going on. Some are, uh, are responding to persecution in a negative way, in a risky way. But then there's a resourceful option too, and that is to face it head on. To wear it as proof of spiritual life and pray for those who do us wrong. I will go into more of that chapter now. We're going to continue in Romans 12 just a little bit more. And um, I'll see if my um, technology catches up. If not, I might get you to help me along, Theo. So here we go. There we are. If you've got a Bible, Romans 12. You should have it anyway, right? Verse 17 to 21. says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Wow. Anyone got enemies they have fed lately? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, buy him a coffee. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. In the face of persecution, leaving those to God's perfect judgment is actually a resource at our disposal. The fact that Paul offers options other than retaliation shows that the Spirit gives us the grace to be resourceful in those settings in a number of ways. Just untake the PowerPoint off. It's, it's being problematic. There's other resourceful, risky dichotomies in Paul's letters. Um, if you open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4, we'll have a look at another one. I was going to have it on screen there, but that's not going to happen now. Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 32. If I get a couple of got it, I'll start. Anyone got it? Awesome. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, 
brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Here there are options one way or the other in play. There's a sense of self-awareness clearly in place here, particularly in the area of anger. When we're realizing we're entering hothead territory, weigh up our options carefully. I remember we know the story of Cain and Abel and Cain's looking, he's probably got a brick in his hand and he's looking at his brother and God is speaking going, think, because sin is crouching at the door waiting to take hold of you. There's an amazing sense of self-awareness that can come even in the midst of those times if we let the Spirit do His work in us. We see here in this passage a clear distinction between risky things. Bitterness. If we hold bitterness, it goes bad. Rage will have bad outlets. Slander has bad outcomes. And we have resourceful things, things you'll find as you press into the Spirit instead of grieving Him. Compassion, forgiveness, kindness. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says a rather popular and sometimes incorrectly processed verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, this is not a promise that we won't experience hardship. That's quite quite the opposite here. Tough things will come our way. And neither is it something applied the way the average shallow Instagram poster might do it too. I've got a four-hour meeting, but God won't give me what I can't handle. The big idea here is that while temptation draws us towards the risky, God is on hand to show us the resourceful way in those times also. Now, as I consider those two things, all these, I see two key things for us to take out of this. When it comes to this risky slash resourceful dichotomy, the Holy Spirit, the advocate that Christ provides for us, is clearly a resource for all of us in our testing times. But the other point is that so too is the family that Christ has provided for us also. We see this particularly in Ephesians 4, where our conduct is described mainly within the realm of the church family setting. We're reminded that we're all members of one body. This implies that our words and our actions affect the whole, not just ourselves. And the resourceful things listed at the end of that passage are actually practiced among ourselves first. The way I see it, brotherly kindness is our practice run of how we love each other in order to actually graduate into the love the community needs to see, both from us and in us. So being real is about being resourceful and our family as believers is a resource. And inside that resource, being real is then about being engaged and accountable.
When I bought this out a few years ago at our men's breakfast, I, I spoke about my dad being a truck driver. And in my early 20s, I got my own truck license and I had a bit of a, you know, I used to love being on the road with him and sometimes his driving would scare the daylights out of me, but, um, but there was other times when I just enjoyed being out there and, in, and being around, you know, doing what he was doing. And, and school holidays were always a tre- uh, just a treat, just going out, hanging around the docks and that sort of stuff in the trucks. But I got my own truck license and became a driver myself. And I remember driving out from Bella, uh, Melbourne to Ballarat once, and as I navigated those crazy hills... You know, between um, you know, Melton and Bacchus Marsh on the main highway there, um, I slipped a now empty truck into neutral and coasted at highway speed down some of those hills. Like 110 and the truck's just hurtling down there and I've got the vehicle in neutral. That's the steepness of the hills there. I told my dad about that once and he actually gave me an unexpected look of genuine worry. And he told me, son, never go downhill in angel gear in a heavy vehicle. I'm like, angel gear? That's what truckies call that, angel gear. If you go down steep hills with a gearbox not correctly engaged, there's insufficient engine revs or manifold vacuums and all those things, and key things can go wrong. One, you can't accelerate out of trouble if you need to, but neither can you do the braking properly either. Just important things, go and stop. Seasoned truckies will tell you that you're literally in the hands of angels if you drive like that. So they call it angel gear. As believers, we can slip so often into angel gear in many ways, particularly in family. If you're not comfortable with the word angel gear, think about it as autopilot. Some of us may have done that even this morning. We got our coffee from a faceless and nameless person in a cafe or drive through said hi to someone in the church car park as we were walking in. We can't remember who that was now. I do that when I visit churches because the introvert in me doesn't want to get too close and I don't want to have to tell my story to people and I'm like, I'm dreading that handshake time and all those things. But So I will sort of be a little bit autopilot if I'm visiting a church, but I try to make it a habit of being more engaged and more aware, particularly when I come to my own. Perhaps we sung songs where the lyrics had little meaning or triggered minimal reflection. If we don't catch ourselves, we may grab a small snack from the table nearest the exit and make a fast go before the, you know, at the end of the service before talking to people. It's, there's that. You know, none of this is to do with what is prepared for us, but it's sometimes how we respond for whatever reason. Brotherly affection calls us to engaged participation. It calls us to a place where we're all in gear and somewhat in sync with each other and in step with what the Spirit is doing in our midst, both in the walls and even outside of it also. When the brakes are called for, we're engaged and ready. When we're called to go, when we're called to accelerate, we're ready, we're in gear, we're good to go. We're engaged. 
When things are taught to us, we reflect on those things. When, when we bounce ideas around from each other, we're not pushing our own agenda. But we're, as, as you know, Brene Brown uses this phrase, listen with the passion with which we want to be heard. One of the mottos I'm learning and living by at the moment. Paul showed us last week in Romans a small snippet of brotherly affection producing engagement. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. In other words, be present and engaged with God's kingdom community. James 5 shows us a deeper expression of this with the idea of both accountability also working in union with engagement. Hopefully the screen will work with this one. So verse 13 to 20. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Let that happiness come out. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church, pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Did you see the engagement there as well as the accountability? We have a picture here of a gathered people doing real ministry without going through the motions. We have people who are open and honest about where they're at. If you're happy and you know it, sing it out. If you're in trouble and you know it, cry out. If you're sick and you know it, call an elder. If you're a sinner and you know it, confess it out. Let it out. If you're an elder and you know it, elected to the role of simply carrying the mantle, be ready to engage with that. Together, bring our engaged fervency to the Sunday gathering. Bring our engaged fervency to all other settings where we engage and interact with each other. Bring our gifts of intercession. Bring spirit-led words of encouragement or even correction and readiness for, for whatever you might engage with. In all of this, we see an engaged people coming from a position of brotherly affection. Where genuine engagement is in place, it will yield a strong culture of accountability. People feel safe to come clean about where they're at, and they feel like they can actually be honest about what they're on about. They don't have to lie to you or don't have to hide what is going on in their life. Transparency in the church is a sacred thing, but it's also a very elusive thing too. And like I said earlier, it's high maintenance, but when it happens, it's amazing. Where engagement is strong, where accountability is strong, we'll become a healthy, vibrant, and transparent community. 
And, when, and because I believe transparency is the opposite of hypocrisy, perfection is not the opposite of hypocrisy. Transparency is. Hypocrisy says we want you to believe a, a degree of perfection about us. Transparency says we want you to know we're not. But we'll own where we're at in order to move forward in our lives. If we can get to transparency, the world will take note of what we have and they'll find that attractive. And finally, being real means being loving. There's an element, even in this brotherly affection setting, that still needs to be fostered. We see a huge challenge set before us. John 13 actually says this, the words of Jesus. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, what, while all, we, all that we've talked about so far comes under the banner of phileo, you know, this philadelphos, this, this um, brotherly affection is, is, is based on the phileo understanding of love. But what Jesus really wants us to pursue and to grow into is agape. But we only know that because of how Jesus demonstrates it to us and how we interact with him. On September 29, uh, Pastor Marguerite will lead the charge in how we move on from one to the other. So many New Testament journeys point to a discipleship walk with agape love as the pinnacle of that walk. Paul takes us this way in many times. John does a number of times, as does Peter in our main feature text. From what is said here through John, this is the space where the world will see us as the real deal. And we can minister effectively even to enemies and strangers from the place of agape love. And because it's a supernatural thing to accomplish, and we don't always walk in step with the Spirit as much as we should, it can take time for agape love to actually form in us. And strangely, if we're open and engaged with the Spirit, it can happen for us in an instant too. Sometimes in my own experience, I've found that both time frames are mysteriously in play. I can find agape, this unconditional choice of love to people who don't deserve it in one setting and not others. It's weird. The Spirit continues to do that work in us. But as we grow towards that, phileo, the kind of love that fuels brotherly affection, is definitely not beyond us. We can't call it a rival just yet. Yeah, there'll be a roof on this thing, but there's still more to go. But we can, in this space of brotherly effect, uh, uh, affection, actually be effective ministers to each other. All the main bits are there. It's an inhabitable faith expression that can be a blessing to others. 
even at this place, even though we're not at this place of arrival or at the pinnacle of this discipleship thing that's been laid out for us, we still have a very good environment in place already that gives us space to get real. In this place of brotherly affection, there's insulation. What is generated within won't escape or dissipate. There's protection, whatever the elements throw at us. We'll hopefully bounce off if this thing works. Here in a brotherly affection, we can be resourceful. Having what we need from both the spirit and each other. Here, we can be engaged. The needs of my brothers and sisters matter to me and my needs matter to them. Their journeys, their voices, their struggles, their realities matter to me and mine to them. Here we can be accountable. There's enough care and concern in phileo to maintain confidences and to pray and to intercede for each other for need and even in sin. There's plenty of room in phileo for celebration together. And there's plenty of maturity in this space to leave judgment at the door. And from here, we can grow in the love Jesus wants us to ultimately operate from. And I honestly believe Jesus uses the church and uses our brothers and sisters in the Lord to help us grow in this regard. We learn to trust each other, to pray for each other, to correct each other, to encourage each other. We learn to be transparent people. And all of that serves as a healthy soil for agape love to emerge. So in the spirit of brotherly affection, let's get real. Let's make this something we can all pursue. And let's watch as a healthy, transparent, and ultimately loving community continues to thrive in all that. Let's pray.